So good morning, everyone. It really is such a treat to be able to share with you this morning. And if you haven't been with us in a while or you're visiting us for the first time this morning, we are currently going through a series called Transformed, which is about our emotional and spiritual health. And it really has been such a fantastic series so far. And this morning, I'm continuing along those lines by preaching on the topic of what it means to live in a place of brokenness and vulnerability. And currently, the word vulnerability has become a bit tricky. To say that you are a vulnerable person is almost just as trendy as saying that you're real or authentic. It's become cool and fashionable. But despite its popularity, we really have to question ourselves as to whether we truly are living genuine lives of vulnerability or whether we are still hiding who we truly are, putting a mask on to other people, hiding our most intimate thoughts, our pain, our struggle, our fears, or what we truly feel from those who are closest to us, those in our church or community, or perhaps even from God. True vulnerability with God and with people is hard. It's not easy. In a world and society that has become so good at putting a filter over who they truly are, it can become almost impossible to know what genuine vulnerability even looks like anymore. And so this morning, I want to take a look at what the scriptures and what God has to say about what this truly means. So you can turn with me to Genesis 37, verse 26 to 27, or if you don't have a Bible, you can follow on the screen behind me. And just before we read the scripture, I'd love to give it a little bit of context. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that Grant spoke about a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob was the guy who wrestles with God and who God renames Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons, and his most favorite son was Joseph. And this wasn't hidden or covered up favoritism either. It was blatant. It was obvious. And it made the other brothers so angry that they wanted to kill him. And they're just about to go through with their brother's murder when one especially creative brother comes up with an idea. And this brother's name is Judah. Judah is the individual that I want to take a look at this morning. As we take a look at a story, we'll begin to see just how raw and real and disturbing it actually is. But in despite of this, it just paints such a beautiful picture of God's restorative and redemptive nature. So as we take a look at a story, it really is my prayer that God would begin to reveal to us what it truly means to live a life out of vulnerability from our brokenness. So Genesis 37, verse 26 to 27. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Wow, what an introduction to the person of Judah. This is pretty grisly stuff. Judah and his brothers are discussing and are just about to go through with Joseph's murder when all of a sudden Judah says, oh, I've got a better plan. I've got a way that not only can we get rid of this nuisance of a brother of ours, but we can profit from it too. We can make a little bit of money from the situation. And if that's not appalling enough, he almost takes it one step further by couching it in this fake niceness, by saying, you know, to kill him would probably be one step too far. He says, after all, he is our brother. 
but selling him. Now that's a good idea. That we can do. And we see that his brothers agree with us, and so Joseph is sold. From the start of this narrative, we begin to see how broken an individual Judah truly is, how messed up his life is. And you could possibly be even thinking at this point, surely his story could not get much worse than this. And yet we see that it does. Judah's story continues throughout the entire chapter of Genesis 38. And we read about how Judah leaves his brothers and his father. The brothers have told their father that Joseph is dead. And in the midst of his father's grief and his pain, Judah just bails. He decides that he couldn't be bothered about this. He has absolutely no remorse for the situation. He just decides to leave. He leaves his family in this huge turmoil and crisis. And he leaves and he goes to live in a foreign land. And there he meets a woman, a foreign woman, and he marries her. And at first glance, you might be thinking, well, what's so bad about that? Like, good for you, Judah. He has, a foreign t- he has a taste for foreign women. Like, that's awesome. But this was a big deal. This was a serious no-no because God had told them that they were not to marry outside of the Jewish nation because God knew that um, in the end, their hearts would be turned away from him and that they would begin to serve and worship the idols that their spouses served. In essence, Judah is actively opposing the will of God. He has no regard for God, and he has no regard for God's will. So he sleeps with his wife, and they end up having three sons, Ur, Onan, and Sheila. Pretty, pretty rough names, but um, Sheila. <laughs> Ur, um, and the scriptures tell us that Ur and Onan were extremely wicked. In fact, Ur was so wicked that God puts him to death leaving behind a wife whose name is Tamar. In the Jewish culture, when you died, it became your uh, brother's responsibility to marry your wife and to take care for her and to provide for her and to make sure that she had a home because in those days, women were not able to provide for themselves. But we see in the story that Onan just flat out refuses to do this. He turns his back on his duty. He won't do the right thing. And so we see that God puts Onan to death as well. So what is Judah's part in all of this mess? we see his response to the situation in Genesis 38, verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my youngest son, Sheila, grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live with her father's household. Judah is saying to Tamar, look, two of my sons are already dead. Who knows what's going to happen to Sheila? Like, I just think it's best that you become a widow and you go back to your father's home. And this was truly offensive. This was so wrong. When Tamar married Ur, she became Judah's daughter. It was his job to look after her, to provide for her. But what does he do instead? He turns her back on her. He tries to get rid of her. He wants to make her somebody else's problem. And after this happens, a long time passes, and eventually Judah's wife dies. And so on her death, Judah goes up to a place called Timnah with his friend Hira, and they go to the men that are shearing Judah's sheep. Now, back in the days um, when men were shearing sheep, it just became a wild sheep-shearing party. (laughs) As ridiculous as that sounds. 
But um, at these sheep-shearing parties, it would just be full of alcohol, drunkenness, debauchery, women's sex, and even prostitution. And Judah is essentially going there because he's in so much pain and brokenness over losing his wife and probably over his whole life thus far that he goes there to try and numb and anesthetize his pain with women and with alcohol. And it's at this party that Tamar re-enters the story. We read from Genesis 38 verse 13 to 19. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge shall I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Tamar, realizing that all is lost, that Judah is not a man of honor, that Sheila is not going to do the right thing by her and marry her, makes last, one last attempt at getting this family's attention. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and Judah wants to sleep with her. Can you imagine how desperate she must have been to do this? But Judah, he has experience. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what he wants, and he knows how to get it. He approaches her. He says, I want to sleep with you. What form of payment will you take for this? And she says, as a promise of payment in the future, I want you to give me your seal, your cord, and your staff. And he does this. He hands it to her. He sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. In a very foolish move, he trades the things that defined him. Those things were a symbol of who he was in his society as a patriarch, as a family leader. He trades all of that for sex. And later on in Genesis 38, we see that he sends his friend Hira back to Timnah with a young goat as payment for sleeping with her, but they cannot find her. She is nowhere to be found, and no one knows anything about her. Three months later, Judah is told that his daughter-in-law Tamar has been found guilty of prostitution and is pregnant. And his response to this, we can read it straight out of Genesis 38 verse 24. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. When Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he calls for her to be burned to death. He burns women. That is the kind of man that Judah is. In Leviticus 20, the law says that if a person is found in the act of adultery, the punishment for that crime is to be stoned to death. But he's not happy with that. He wants to take it one step further. He wants to have her burned. How sick and twisted and self-righteous. When Tamar is standing there in front of him, pregnant and unmarried, he's standing over her in all his self-righteousness, lying to everyone holding onto the law, even increasing on it out of his own pride, when all of a sudden the story takes a catastrophic turn. Genesis 38 verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, 
I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Sure, this is bad. This is very bad because everyone would have been able to recognize by the seal and the cord and the staff who was the person that who had slept with her and who had made her pregnant. Judah is utterly exposed. There's nowhere left for him to hide. Everyone is made well aware of his brokenness. And as we talk about brokenness this morning, I thought it would be a great idea just to look at a definition of what brokenness actually is. And Alex Rettman gives a great definition of this. He says, Brokenness comes from the sin that happens to us, the sin that happens around us, and the sin that happens through us. It's those unsightly things beneath the surface, things that we would rather not have people see or know about us, things we probably don't want to have to share with others. It's things that have to do with the way that we cope with our sin. It's things that we may have never had control of or over. It's the youth leader who is addicted to porn and not telling anyone about it. It's the married woman who is having an emotional affair with her boss. It's the little girl who is abused by her father and is confused and bitter, and her entire life is built around anger. It's the pastor who loves God but has no control over his temper. Brokenness is everywhere in this world. It's all around us. And more often than not, people would rather try to control their brokenness than reveal it. And so what we see happening most of the time is that people respond to their brokenness in one of three ways. The first way is that we flee. We flee from our brokenness. We try to hide the unsightly parts about us and rather focus on the other half of who we are. Or some of us flee by burying our pain in some form of addictive behavior. We can't face our pain and suffering, and so we try to numb it. We try to anesthetize it. That's exactly what we see Judah doing at the sheep-sharing party. He's going there to forget about his brokenness, to try and numb it through women and through alcohol. He's trying to forget his brokenness. And to be completely honest with you, I find myself doing this all the time. Life sucks. It's a shame. Things didn't go our way. So we spend more, we eat more, we buy more, we do more, we touch more, we get more. And instead of focusing on our brokenness and our pain and being vulnerable about it, we try to cover it up with a myriad of and a supply of people, of places, or of things. Or in my case, of food. One of the predominant ways that I have dealt with my brokenness in my life is through the abuse of food. Um, And this has reared its head in my life so many times, for years and years and years. It kind of started pre-teen, before I went to high school, I was suffering from anorexia. And that slowly developed into more of a combination of anorexia and bulimia. And um, nowadays, it seems to have manifested itself in binging or overindulging in food, using food to comfort myself, to kind of numb my pain, and to feel better. Because over the past few years, I've really faced this battle with a fear of the future. I'm an absolute control freak. Every, anyone who knows me knows that I like to control the things that are happening around me. I want to be able to determine what's going to happen in my life, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, who's going to be doing what. I want control of it all. I don't want to have to trust in God. I don't want to have to turn to Jesus. I don't want to have to put my faith and trust in anyone. Quite frankly, I probably would quite like it if I could be my own God. But obviously that's not possible. 
And so I turned to food. Food is my comfort. And it's currently a, a battle I'm facing right now. Secondly, we can react to our brokenness by fighting. When we see our brokenness, when it comes to the forefront, when we see it for what it truly is, some of us become bitter and angry because life hasn't turned out the way that we think it should have or we think that life hasn't been fair to us. And so we pick a specific agenda, whether it be a cause or about race or about gender or about anything, and we put all our anger onto that. The belief here is that the world would be a better place if it was more like me. It's the business manager who's mad all the time because he didn't get that promotion or increase he thinks he deserves. It's the person that gives all his money to a crook to invest it, and he loses it all, and he starts to become angry with everyone, mistrustful of everyone. When we respond to our brokenness this way, it's more coming out of a place of righteous We believe it's coming out of a place of righteous indignation, when in reality, most of the time, it just stems from our anger, and it's not really about a love for anyone or anything. Ultimately, if this is you, you are trusting in your ways of thinking to make this world a better place, and not trusting that God is working all things to the good and will make all things right in time. Thirdly, we can hide. Some of us respond to our brokenness by hiding. We want to cover up the things about ourselves that aren't nice. We want to bury them. We don't want to have to reveal that to anyone or show that side to anyone. We become curators of our life, like art curators in a museum, putting up on display the pieces of our lives that we think people will find the most acceptable. That is most of the time exactly what social media is all about. We are so insecure that we're looking for affirmation and approval from people. And so we put the best pictures up, the highlights, the best moments of our lives, so people can see how fun we are, how interesting we are, how amazing we are. But we don't want to let them see the true us because we're actually afraid that they might not like it. We never let anyone in because it's just too dangerous. We might become exposed just like Judah was. But here is the amazing thing about the story of Judah, is that things get better for him. We see that Judah actually ends up getting blessed. When his father is about to die, he calls his sons to their deathbed, and he prays a blessing over them. He prophesies them over them about what their line and their lineage and their legacy is going to be like. And for some of the brothers, it's really not good. Like, I would rather not get a blessing than the blessing that they got. And for brother Joseph, who was sold into slavery, it's an okay blessing. It's not the best, but it's not the worst. But for Judah, it's incredible. It's the best blessing of them all. Nobody gets a blessing like Judah does. And this is the blessing that Judah gets. Genesis 49, verse 8 to 11. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, oh gosh, like a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robe in the blood of grapes. 
Judah says to him, Jacob says to him, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your brothers will, in fact, even bow down to you. When you think back to that story of Judah, is there anything praiseworthy about him? He says, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. This means Judah is going to be unstoppable. He's untouchable. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until whom it belongs will come. Who is this talking about? It's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. He is saying that through Judah's line, Jesus will be born. The Savior, the Redeemer of the world, will come through the line of Judah. Is that fair? Is that right to bless a snake like Judah in that way? Because at this point, you've got to be thinking about the other brother, Joseph, the brother that was sold into slavery. Because if you read through Genesis, you see that Joseph's story really is one of innocence. In fact, he's sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, and ends up saving Egypt and the known world at the time from a famine. A woman comes after him who is married, and she wants to sleep with him, and he runs away. He endures, he perseveres, and he puts his trust in God. So is it fair that Judah gets the better blessing? Like, what about Joseph? Did God make some kind of mistake? But when we look at that moment when Tamar is standing in front of Judah and she's utterly exposed him, it's so interesting to see Judah's response to the situation. He doesn't flee, he doesn't fight, he doesn't hide. Judah gets real about himself and gets honest about who he is. Genesis 38 verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. Judah is totally lowered. He's utterly humiliated. And his response is incredible. He begins to confess things he hasn't even publicly been accused of. He says, yes, you're right. Actually, I'm the one who slept with her. And it's actually my fault that she's pregnant and in this position. But worse than that, so much worse than that, I abandoned her. I didn't care for her in the way that I should have. I left her to fend for herself. He puts himself on the stake. He exposes his own wickedness. And what he's actually saying in this moment is that it's not her that should be burned, but it's me that should be burned. Judah becomes really honest about who he is. And after Genesis 38, you start to see that Judah is mentioned a lot more often. In fact, when the author of Genesis writes about Judah and his brothers, it's always phrased in this way. Judah and his brothers went there. Judah and his brothers did this. Judah and his brothers went before Pharaoh. It's almost like the author of Genesis is trying to tell us that Judah has become a leader. Judah has been changed. How? Why? Because Judah became honest about who he was, and Judah grew because of it. We see later on in the story when Judah and his brothers go to Egypt um, to get food because there's a famine. He tells his father that he will look after the youngest son, Benjamin, the dad's new favorite son, that he will take care of him. His exact words are that um, he will take the blame for anything that happens to Benjamin. And so they go up to Egypt, and they're standing before Pharaoh, and all of a sudden, Benjamin is being accused of stealing. 
And Judah's response to this is that I will take his punishment. I will go to jail. I will be killed. I will take the punishment of Benjamin. That is a 180 degrees change in the character of Judah. From being the kind of person that would sell their brother into slavery over jealousy, he becomes the kind of person that would lay down his life for his brother. So why does Judah get the kingly blessing? Because he acted like Christ. He takes on the hurt of his brother so that he can preserve his brother. He lays down his life for him, taking on his crimes onto himself. Who does that remind us of? That's Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross for us, taking on our sins so that we can have life, that we can be reconciled with God, that we can be blameless before God. Because God's grace is what empowers us. The gospel isn't legalism, shape up, get better, do better, try harder. The gospel is humbling yourself and coming before God and saying, you know what, there is sin in my life. There's things about my life that are not good, are not perfect. But I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. The gospel gives us humility and self-worth. Yes, there's things in my life that are not right. But at the same time, I am so loved by the creator of the universe that he sent his son to die for me. So where does this begin for us? And how does it become practical? Because being a vulnerable person, a truly genuine, authentic, vulnerable person, is incredibly difficult. But I think it starts with getting honest with God, telling him about every situation in our life. Tell him about your anger. Tell him about your sin. Tell him about your, what you're battling with, your lust, your struggles, your pain. Even sharing your hopes and dreams with him. Bring it all to him. Because we can't shape up. We've never been able to shape up. But we can come before him and say, God, this is who I am. And I'm humbled by that. But I know that you can change me and transform me. Repent, repent of our sin and go to him. That's our beginning place. And that's where grace steps in. Most of us would know that song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And it goes, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And that song was written by a guy whose name was John Newton. And this guy was a really bad guy. He was a slave owner, but he was also involved in the slave industry. And so he was the one who would basically transport the slaves to their new owners. And um, he writes the song about how, how his life changes when he becomes a follower of Jesus, how the grace of God and the gospel has impacted his life. And if you listen to that song and you read through the words, you almost go, wow, this is powerful stuff. This guy really understood the gospel and the grace that God had shown him. But the interesting thing about John Newton and that song is that he wrote it while he was still in the slave industry. He was actually writing about the grace that God had shown him for his alcoholism and his gambling. That's like the Nazi SS guy repenting to God for cheating his friend in a game of poker. You kind of think, wow, you're really missing the mark. But that's the thing about the gospel and about God's grace is when we come to him just in the beginning with what we can share with him, with the first pieces of our lives, when we begin to trust him, his grace just enters every core of who we are and begins to change us, shape us, mold us, and helps us to become more like Jesus, just like with what happened with Judah. 
I want to be a humble and honest and courageous person who's vulnerable, who can share with God and with others about the parts of my life that aren't that nice because I want to become more like Jesus. I want to change. I want to be transformed. So the question today is, who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to get honest with? Is it God? Is it someone close to you? Why are you masking who you truly are? Why are you hiding it? Because the truth is, we're all imperfect, fractured, broken people. We're all in need of God and the gospel. Do you want to grow? Do you want to become more like Jesus? And are there people who really know you, deep down, all the way know you? Or are we still masking or hiding who we truly are from people? Do you know that God has grace for you no matter what you've done or no matter where you're at? He is calling us to him to repent of our sin, to ask him for forgiveness so that we can put our trust in him and choose to come to him and ask him to help us with our brokenness and to begin to transform our lives. And I was just thinking about this morning, and the one verse that God really highlighted to me was from Psalm 147. And this is what it says about God. It says, this is God's character. It says that he um, heals the brokenhearted, binding up their wounds. And I just really felt this morning that for those of us that have a lot of brokenness or battling with brokenness, and it's actually led us to a place of being brokenhearted, that this morning that God wants to meet with us, that he wants to heal our broken hearts, and he is the great physician that wants to heal us and bind up our wounds so that we can move forward with him. Thanks, Kimmy. Can I ask you to stand, please? We're going we're gonna to worship and, and then do communion. Um, <clears throat> but but while, while Kimmy was preaching, I thought, you know, it's in... I don't know if you've ever thought this. Um, yes, if they really knew who I was, I wonder if they'd say those nice things they say about me. Or if, 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 if they really knew what the thoughts that I think or the... Um, whatever, my, how I speak to my parents or how I speak to my co-workers or how I speak to those who work for me or if they really knew my internet search history or if they really knew this, would they still like me? Would they still want to be my friend? You know what the beauty about the gospel is? is you, can be known, you can be fully known and fully loved and accepted at the same time. Do you know that God fully knows you and he fully loves and accepts you in Jesus. And I think the, the, the starting point of that is actually to be vulnerable with God, to actually say, this is me. Like Kimmy said, and so, as she so brilliantly um, shared with us there, that actually the starting point, which is what we're going to do now with communion, is actually we go to God, and, and this is the very reason why he was broken. And we, Jesus said, uh, when he had the, the Last Supper, he said, this is my body broken for you. And it's actually a representation of, of how we ourselves are broken. As Kimmy's been saying, we're all broken, but we don't stay in that place of brokenness. That's why Jesus came and died. See, if we, if we just had to end and say, I'm broken and this is the end, then actually there's no hope. But you know, the hope for our brokenness is actually coming to God and saying, actually, I'm tired of carrying this mask. I'm tired of carrying this load. This thing is killing me. It's wearing me down. And don't you find it's jolly hard work putting up a facade? But actually, we can go to God and say, in all our brokenness, Say, Lord, I'm sorry. This is, I'm carrying this, I'm carrying this. And today, actually, I want to bring it to you. And I want to say, please heal me. Please, if you, um, and we're going to worship now. And we're going to, can I ask you to come forward and do communion? But I think it's a great opportunity to, to, 
maybe confess to friends in, in small groups and someone that you trust. Go and say, listen, actually, I've been carrying this and I want to lay it down. I want to, I want to actually just help me. I want to just confess. And that's a starting point, actually. It's just confessing. Or maybe you need to go before God and say, actually, Lord, you know, that thing that I've just been feeling you poking and prodding me and actually today it stops. And, and, and God is saying, actually, come, I want to heal you. I, I, can I ask you to come forward? We're going to, the, the, the bread represents Jesus' body broken for us and the, the, the grape juice represents how he wants to clean us and make us whole and make us perfect. I was thinking of um, like sometimes how we clean ourselves. I don't know if you've seen that Leon Schuster ad where he's in the, the ad, that little prank that he does where they go with this filthy, dirty rag and they're at a garage and then they go wash guys' fame, like sports cars and things. But it's like full of mud. And the more that these, the, the guy's trying to wash it, the more the guy wants to punch him. And sometimes we like that. We in our brokenness try to fix ourselves with our own dirty rags and what actually just breaks us even further. But you know what God does? He comes to us with a beautiful with a beautiful rag, his blood, and it washes us completely clean, completely clean, completely clean. Can I ask you to come forward, maybe grab, break up into groups, come forward means put one foot in front of the other, yes, Sandra, you got it, you got it, you know, yeah, yeah, and can you, can we break up into groups, or even, even if you just need a alone time with God, or even if you just want to stand and worship, Nathan's got a great song, I think it's very appropriate for what, what Kim is preaching on, if you concentrate on the words. Soul will soar on the third. 